entered the inner sanctum. You remember the inner sanctum, Barry? I sh- I love the inner sanctum. Okay. Well, yeah, I like to yeah, throw a little sauce on the listeners every once in a while. This is episode 236. This episode finds our very own Barry Rose on vacation. So he's not here this week. Oh, wait a minute. He is here. Hello, Barry. What? 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 Yes. I know you son of a bitch. You take more vacations than any man I know, except maybe me. I don't know. But on this particular episode, Breaking Heavy with Badrin and Barry, we are going to the television of San Francisco. No, not Carl Malden and Michael Douglas, Streets of San Francisco. But we are going to San Francisco, Lou Kippelman's home territory back in the day, Roy Shire promoting Jimmy Snuka versus Playboy Buddy Rose from San Francisco TV. It's a humdinger. Besides that, oh, Barry, we have got a really fun interview. Our man, Nick Massey. Hooking us up with Dr. D, fucking David Schultz. How cool is that, Bear? Yeah, and what a great guest he is, too. He is hilarious. Uh, Told us a couple bounty hunting stories that'll curl your hair. Good stuff besides all that, because, Barry, if we are nothing else, what are we? We're givers. Exactly. So we are also offering our choices for the top Burt Reynolds movies Barry, you love a good Burt Reynolds movie, don't you? I love a Burt Reynolds movie. What's your all-time favorite Burt Reynolds movie? Before we, uh, we've already pre-taped that segment, but shred top of your head, what's your favorite Burt Reynolds movie all time? Oh, man. I'm going to say Longest Yard. Longest Yard. Uh, I thought you were going to go Smoking the Bandit. Sharky's Machine would have been my second, Jeff. Sharky's Machine, great movie. A lot of people, when we did a movie review, weren't huge fans of that. I love that movie. Rachel Ward. But yes. I will say, going back to my childhood, White Lightning. Who doesn't love Barry? If you remember White Lightning, a little bit oh, yeah. of the old shaky pudding. You know what I'm talking about, my man? Oh, yeah. Barry time once again for our match of the week. We are going, ooh, Lou Kippelman territory, the city by the bay, San Francisco, California. It is Roy Shire Promotions. And uh, we want to thank our friend Kevin Orcutt for, uh, for hooking us up with this uh, particular match. Sweet Lewis, scam likely, Mr. Kippelman, can you join us to provide a little context for this match? Always a pleasure to have the dulcet tones of Lewis Kippelman join us, Barry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, so, you know, uh, Lou, first of all, we, uh, as we talked before we began recording, we're thinking uh, we're talking sometime mid to late 1978, correct? That's kind of what I'm pegging it at based on uh, what was referenced. Yeah, Barry's not Lou's doing a pegging reference. Oh, oh he's no. pegging. Okay. <laughs> that's oh, that's so okay. Anyway. No, I leave the pegging to Mike Elkin. Thank you. But, there you yeah. Go. So uh, anyway, what we have here is we have a look at a territory that was, let's put it kindly, Shires in the late 60s or you know mid-60s into the – I want to say middle part of the 70s was really one of the great territories uh, in the country. Uh, Then, of course, towards the latter part of the decade, things started taking a turn downhill. Uh, Pat Patterson had left. Uh, Of course, Ray Stevens had left long before that. Uh, We had uh, the uh, the time with uh, Kevin Sullivan and Bob Roop working the promotion. Bob has talked about in the past that Roy was not a guy that uh, was extremely respectful of the talent. Let's put it that way. So, uh, Lou, Portland guys had started to come into the San Francisco area to help out with the promotion. If you could provide a little context with what was going on at that time uh, for the listeners. 
Well, by around that period in the mid to late 70s, you had top guys like Snooka and uh, Roddy Piper kind of hopscotch in between Portland and then uh, the San Francisco area and then uh, the LaBelle territory in uh, Los Angeles. So you would find them, you know, kind of simultaneously appearing on shows for all three promotions. And you had, I think, one of the most emblematic cases you could see was in 78, not long before his death. Uh, Lonnie Moondog Maine was the U.S. champion in San Francisco. And Shire decided to book him in a program uh, against Roddy Piper. Uh, Moondog Maine had been a heel, or no, Moondog Maine turned babyface after falling out with Angelo Mosca around 74, 75. And so. Maine was the face, Piper was the heel. At the same time, uh, Mike LaBelle booked Moondog Maine as a heel. And he and Piper down there as heels were the America's Tag Team Champions. And that would be fine with separate, you know, sort of territories. Except, of course, LaBelle's show was only broadcast on the Spanish International Network, the forerunner to Univision. And there was a SIN affiliate, Channel 60 at the time, that aired in San Francisco. So, of course, kayfabe was uh, totally blown out by the situation. Eventually so that to tout the main event of Maine versus Piper, they shot a promo, an angle, between Maine and Piper in L.A. with Jeff Walton doing the interview where they were getting heat and trying to explain it that Moondog Maine was contractually obliged to team with Piper. Piper was stealing him blind, et cetera, et cetera. Not a great explanation, but there you have it. Sort of reminds me of when the After Magazines uh, did an article about the fact that Fred Blassie was this beloved figure in Los Angeles for the fans. But when he went to New York, he was a complete and utter heel. So, uh, sort of, uh, you know, Roy Shire's uh, attempt to do that, uh, if you will, Barry. So, Barry, you've had a chance to look at this match. Lou, thank you so much for the context. What would you think of this match, Barry? Yeah, and this is a look. This is a this is actually a really good match too. What I uh, th- apparently this was a setup. They were they were claiming that Ricky Youngblood did not show up for the match. So Roy Shires has put in uh, Jimmy Snuka. As his replacement, and I believe as we were talking, there's something to do with the U.S. title because the passing of Moondog Maine. Uh, Rick Youngblood was not somebody I was overly familiar with. This is the son of Ricky Romero, who was Rick Youngblood. I guess did work a few territories. Uh, I saw him on Facebook. I was always familiar with Jay Mark and Chris, but not Rick. But anyways, he didn't make it. So Roy Shire comes out. And I got to tell you that we, we've heard a million Roy Shire stories, and I'll share one that Rocky Johnson shared at CWF Legends Fan Fest number six. And that was Rocky, in Lutz, Florida, wasn't it, Barry? That happened to be at the uh, Marriott Residence in North Point. Sun Coast Highway. Somewhere in Lutz, just residence in, in Lutz. But so Rocky Johnson is telling a story, and uh, he brings up Roy Shire. 
and he was discussing, uh, I guess, a conversation. And it, it was, and I'm going to paraphrase it, obviously, because I remember part of it. But he said, uh, you know, Rocky, a lot of people, they don't like me here. Uh, they think I'm a tough boss and whatever. And, he, and I don't really give a fuck. I'm going to this is my business and I'm going to run it. And he said, and maybe you don't like me, Rocky. And maybe you're one of these people that's going to piss on my grave when I die. And Rocky said, uh, he goes, no. Roy, I I can guarantee you I will not piss on your grave when you die. The line is going to be way too long. So I uh, exactly I loved when he (laughs) said that. But there's it's almost universal. There's so many people. It's very hard to find somebody who didn't dislike Roy Shires. And and then he does. And he brought a lot of it on himself. Let's be honest. You know, I think he brought from everything I've heard. He brought the majority on himself. Then this was the guy that when he was done promoting, he was bitter. He was angry. You know, Bob Roop, the, the story, Bob Roop tried to steal the territory, Buddy Rose tried to do it. And there were others, I believe, because everybody was just so fed up with him. But this was the same guy that when he was basically done with the wrestling business, out of spite, out of bitterness, exposed the business. And, you know, it's it to me it just, you know, not a great guy. Again, there's a million stories out there. But uh, even the the minute he's on camera you will get this dislike for him. He just doesn't come across as a guy that's uh, has any redeeming qualities whatsoever. Both these guys are in great shape and both could really, really work at this stage. Buddy Rose is a guy and I don't know what year the, the waking really started to occur. I'm going to guess within a year or two of this, but it, at, you know, even as a heavier guy, he was still a good worker. But in his heyday, which I would say right here, he's in good shape. He looks good, can cut a promo, can wrestle, can do it all. I, I And I hate to say it. I think if Buddy Rose had really watched his weight, maybe spent just a, a, a brief portion of his time in a gym, maybe to put on a little muscle so he didn't look like, like he had a dad bod. I, I Honestly, I, he just had it all. Buddy Rose legit had it all. And Jimmy Snuka is really good here, too. Jimmy Snuka having a good match and, and knows how to work. Like when you watch like some of these arm drag takedowns and things like that, Snuka could actually work. One thing that did strike me, actually two things struck me. One is Hank Renner's hairstyle. <laughs> Hank Renner being the, uh, and I'll tell this story, which I know I've told before. Hank Renner was the the veritable ring announcer of this promotion for so many years. And the infamous Dr. Mike Lano, and Lou, maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't, but uh, Dr. Mike Lano ran a uh, a television show. It was a, K- a television show. I'm making it sound way too uh, <laughs> exactly. I've heard about it. I've seen, I, I saw his Ray Stevens tribute show. It was on public access in the East Bay here called Canvas Cavity. Correct. That's 100% right. And so what he check. used to do, check. check, very good. What he used to do back in the day was to anybody who was associated with professional wrestling in any form, but didn't live anywhere where the show aired, he would mail out video copies. So let's just say, you know, 95% of the wrestling world, he's mailing out copies of this. So he mailed out an episode and I don't know, I don't remember what, I think it was a tribute show, but I don't remember, but he had on Hank Renner and Hank at this time was much older, was in terrible health. And he, 
I'm not a guy that likes to trash Mike Lano. A lot of people take shots. I don't do that because I don't think he's a horrible person. However, I would I would say his judgment is off. So he's got on Hank Renner and Hank is sitting in a chair and Hank literally is keeling over on camera and Lano, without missing a beat as he's talking, walks next to Hank and pushes him back up so that he's facing the camera. My point being, Hank should have never been on camera at this stage, or at least this should have been edited out. I'm assuming maybe it was airing live, but I'll never forget it because I was like, it was literally, you've taken a guy like out of a nursing home, propped him up in a chair, can't really speak or do anything. He's killing over and there's Lano positioning him for the camera. So came across. Yeah. The other thing that struck me was the piped in crowd noise. And if if you watch this match, and it's a great match, though, but the crowd's not going wild, but the crowd noise, they're going wild. So I don't know where that came from. Right. And I can give you a little bit of background. Hank Renner was the sports director at KTXL Channel 40 in Sacramento. And starting, well, they started doing uh, TV wrestling there in Sacramento for the Sacramento market in 1969. And then Shire also did television, had done it for about a decade at KTVU Channel 2 in Oakland. But eventually, uh, Shire being the charmer he was, pissed off the wrong people so that by September of 1970, KTVU canceled the show called National All-Star Wrestling. So then Shire was forced to make the Sacramento show his main TV And in San Francisco, it aired on KBHK Channel 44, which was an independent like Channel 2, but Channel 2 had much more prominence in the market. So let's talk about Rose has uh, Ken Ramey with him, uh, a guy that is one of those managers forgotten in time, uh, but a guy. It's funny, Ken Ramey, when I first started following wrestling, had this crew cut, literally the hair is pointing straight up. You know, almost like uh, it, it could be like a, a full on uh, it's not a mohawk, but his whole head looks like a mohawk the way that uh, I don't know if he used product to get it strand like that. But it was really pretty amazing. Now uh, it's about seven, eight years after that. And Ken Ramey, his hair is literally combed straight down again. I, I'm guessing he didn't use any product because there wasn't product back then. Well, maybe Vitalis. I don't know, uh, which is our first time ever referencing uh, Vitalis, by the way. And by the way, I wanted to mention also, Lou. Credit to you goes for the first ever use on this podcast of the word hopscotch. Uh, very, very good stuff. Oh. Thank you. And we congratulate you on that. But Ken Ramey, uh, one of those guys, Barry, again, forgotten in time with your your uh, J.C. Dykes, your dandy Jack Crawford. Ken Ramey was a great, great heat seeker uh, at ringside. Yeah. You know what? It's uh Ken Ramey was a guy, first off, here was a guy that was a referee in several territories. He was a ref in Florida for years and also a manager. But yeah, he uh, they, there was another guy, too. And this I'll keep this actually uh, specific to the San Francisco Bay Area promotion. But Gerhard Kaiser. Yes, I, I remember him. Yeah. With the Von Brauners and in uh, doing a, I guess, a, a Nazi or, you know, maybe a pseudo Nazi gimmick. And uh, I think his real name was Gary Kaiser. Is that right, Lou? I believe so. And he in his shoot life, he was a jeweler. Wow. 
It's yeah. still with See, us. Lou always coming up with the great content, Barry. Yeah, still with <laughs> us, Lou. Do you know her? I am unsure. I will investigate. Okay. So, getting back to the match. So we had a uh, a promo that uh, Buddy Rose did with uh, with Ken Ramey and Hank Renner. Uh, you know the proverbial uh, "I'm not defending my title against uh, you know Jimmy Snuka," and then they come in the match. So uh, a really well done TV match uh, for the time. Uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, the finish, Barry Snuka locks in the uh, the full Nelson. Uh, the bell rings. Uh, the match is over, and Snuka refuses to let go. Uh, the ref is tossed aside. Snuka has turned into this crazed animal that wants to kill Buddy Rose, and uh, pandemonium ensues. A really, really strong TV match, Barry. It, it, this is a great TV match, and uh, again, the talent involved and. Uh... I it's, you know, Snuka obviously became arguably one of the biggest stars, if not the biggest star in the world for a brief period, some four five, six years later. But he rose big, big star out here, big star in Portland, got a push in the WWF, but uh, I think his weight issues. But if you really want to see what I think, I think Buddy Rose and we've talked about it, kind of like Adrian Adonis. In some I ways. was just going to say, yeah, that's a pretty close comparison between the two. Two guys, super talented guys uh, who had very good main event runs when their yep. when their health was, you know, their weight was down and they were more healthy. And then that weight started to balloon up uh, to very unhealthy levels and go figure uh, their work started going downhill. And, uh, you know, the jobs weren't there that used to be there, Bear. Yeah, no, that's it. The job's uh, no longer. And uh, and Buddy Rose even came down to Florida. He was in CWF. I think it was 85. I want to say lasted uh, three weeks, maybe. Like he wasn't around too long. And then you and I actually saw Buddy Rose in 2005 in Tampa at the Wrestle Reunion. And Buddy had to be legitimate. And this is not an exact, Jeff, you were there. Not an exaggeration. I'm going to say he was probably 400 pounds. Yeah. His, gonna, his, his weight was like Dr. Jerry Graham level out of yes, control. Yes, yeah, that's so. it. Yeah. But uh, And I, I meant to ask you before we wrap this up. Uh, uh, Ken Ramey, did he ever work uh, state of Florida? Oh, well, so Ken Ramey worked as the manager of, uh, shit, was it the medics? He worked as medics, it was a interns, which one of the two? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it was the medics. I, I don't, but I, it could have been. But it, again, before my time, we're talking late 60s. And then he came back and was around in the late 70s as a manager, uh, far removed. I, I believe maybe even using a different name so that any of the, the long holdouts that have been going for decades didn't recognize him. But uh yeah, he was a guy that spent time in Florida, and I want to say he bounced around a couple of territories refereeing. And from all accounts, I believe he passed away a few years ago. Really nice guy and highly intelligent, apparently. And I, I, if I remember correctly, I think I might have read it in one of Scott Teal's old uh, Where Are They Now kind of books. Uh, it was a guy that was a wrestling fan that got yes. into the business. So, you know, a guy that really wanted to be a part of the wrestling business. And, uh, gee, no big surprise that those are the kind of people that want to be in the business, that were fans of the business, that usually end up uh, having great success. We will post a link to this match uh, in our Facebook group, Breaking Cave with Bowdrin and Barry. I'll try to see if I can find that promo that uh, that Rose and Dr. Ken do before the match starts. Uh, that way you guys can get a look at uh, 
the sort of uh, promos that uh, Dr. Ken Ramey can, uh, could do because we all know that Buddy Rose was great on promos. Uh, we will post that in our group, and uh, we hope that you will check it out. So, David, right away, first of all, absolute pleasure to have you on here. I want to start off with a question about your tag team days with Dennis Condry. So I had a chance uh, at one point to ask Bobby Eaton. I said, which version of the Midnight Express do you think was the greatest team of all time? You and Dennis or you and Stan? And Bobby Eaton said to me, you want to talk the greatest teams of all time? You need to talk about Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson and Dennis Condry and David Schultz. So give that high recommendation. Tell me what you like better about your team with Dennis Condry and being honest, what did you like better about Dennis's team with Phil Hickerson? Well, you know, Phil Hickerson and Dennis Condry was a heck of a team. That's uh, when I just started in the business, they was tag team partners. And Phil Hickerson weighed by 350, 375 probably, I'm, I'm guessing. But, you know, he, he would fly around the ring like he weighed 200 pounds. And they had everything down, man. All the moves, all the little tags. They knew exactly what each other was going to do. And then when the field kind of stepped aside, I came in, and I'd already watched them and rode with them up and down the road. And I knew how Phil and Dennis was working. So I just fell right in Phil's place and started doing the same thing. And Dennis and myself, we go way back. We talk to each other every week just about one heck of a wrestler, man, Dennis and Phil, and of course myself. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want. <laughs> it's okay if you brag on yourself. I don't want to do that, but you know, I was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, what what were the early days of your career like? And I, I remember. Uh, so, I, I grew up in Florida at the time, and I was a young okay. kid, and I would trade programs with fans in the Memphis region, Louisville and Evansville, Indiana, and they would send me the programs and you were working the territory at that time. What, what do you remember specifically about the early days of your career? What was that like for you? Well, it was a hard way for me. I started off and, uh, within a year after I got started, Jerry Law and myself was tag team partners. And, um, you know, I got some good training watching him riding with him been in the ring with him and you know all the other guys too but my trainer the guy that trained me to get in the business herb welch he's the one that trained me and taught me to be don't let people know how tough you are because if you let them know how tough you are they're going to shy away from you you know and but when you go overseas you go to uh, germany you go to japan you go to egypt wherever you go then let them know how tough you are. But, you know, people was actually scared to get in the ring with me. These are the ones that wasn't, you know, the experienced guy had no problem with me. They knew I was business, great business, 100%. And uh, you get a young guy, though, hear stories about me because they believe what they see in the ring. When you got two professionals in there, the young guy sitting back said, oh, my goodness, oh, did you see that? Oh, you see yeah, we seen it. We did it. We've been there and done that. So, you know, but, uh, you know, it's hard when you know how to take care of yourself and you're not scared of nobody in the business. And, you know, I met some pretty bad guys, man, like, uh, Bruiser Brody, you know, 
he was he was a great guy to work with. This this guy was absolutely marvelous in the ring. I mean, now you, you feel like he got kicked by a mule a few times, but that's the way it went. That's what his mo was. You know, he was stiff. You know, he was tough, and you had to be tough with him, or you wouldn't get back in the ring with him because he wouldn't want to work with you no more. Uh, you know. It, a lot of tough guys in this business that people don't realize how tough they are. I mean, you know, Ron Fuller, I mentioned his name a while ago. You know, Ron Fuller used to hit me, and he hit me on the left side of the ear, and the right ear would get hit, too. His long arms, you know. <laughs> and if he missed you, you know, it sounded like an airplane coming by. And, you know, you never heard anything out of him. And you get in there and, uh, you know, Ron and Robert Fuller was wrestling before they were 12 years old with Buddy Fuller, the, their father, taught them that way. And that's where Herb Welch was in the family. And he taught me that way. I had to have my wife get me out of the car first three or four weeks of training. I couldn't even get out of the car and 45 miles away. I'd come up and blow the horn and say, you need to come help me out. I couldn't lift my legs. Because Herb was trying to get me to not do the business. Back then, they wanted to get the the whiners and the criers out. If you couldn't take it, get out before you start. But I stayed through it, and, I mean, it wasn't tough to me. The only thing about it, everybody come in and work with me. thought I knew everything about the business, and I didn't know nothing but protect myself, you know. And I'd been doing that my whole life, so that was pretty easy to do, you know. Yeah, well, and, and David, you, you mentioned that, and that's certainly one of the lost things about the wrestling business was you really were able to weed out the guys that really wanted it, uh, you know, as opposed to the guys that were just, uh, you know, hey, it'll be an easy way for me to make some money. I'll go on there and do that TV wrestling stuff. And back in the day, when you got in the business, you had earned your way into the business. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And uh, most guys, you know, I mean, I trained guys for a while after I got out of the business off and on, you know. And uh, these guys, you know, some of them told me, all I want to do is work the weekends. Well, you need to go somewhere else because you're not going to make it here. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I train guys to uh, learn how to work in the ring, wrestle, take care of themselves, learn the hopes, learn the moves. And you're not going to make it if that's all you want to do. Well, I'd like to try it. Well, he never come back. He just worked that one day. And <laughs> he said, wow, that's too rough for me. But, yeah. and, you know, and, you know, but before I throw it to Barry, I do have one question since you were talking about uh, the yeah. way that the crowds perceived you. And you were kind of a classic, and, and I mean this completely complimentary. You were a classic what they call bully heel, okay? So yep. as a bully heel, how do you know? what? What is that? Uh, is it maybe instinctual or not? to where you get where the crowd is interacting with you and you're interacting with them. What is that moment where, you know, okay, I can't let this go any further because then it'll start getting out of hand. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you, like you said, you do know when you got ring savvy and you understand these people, you can, you can tell when they start throwing scissors in the ring, <laughs> yeah, that's a good sign. Yeah. In the ring and hammers and stuff. Some of these small shows, you know, you say, wow, these guys are out of control. When they start burning your car outside, uh, you know, breaking your windows, cutting your tires, you, you've, got, you've got a lot of people not liking you. But they do like you, but 
they they love to hate you. I don't know if that sounds good or not, but you know they know when I come in, they was going to get their money's worth. They're not going to sit there and go home and say, "Oh, I wish that match wasn't on there." They're going to go home and say, "Oh my God, man, he like still that guy." He, uh, you know, and uh, that's what the guy I'm wrestling with felt like too. And they come out of the ring, complain to the promoters, "Hey, he's stiff. He's is." They say, "Well, go tell him." No, I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> but you know, I was I was in the business for the business. That's I mean. Still today, I'm I'm out there with guys. When I, I go to these events and I talk to some of the young wrestlers that come around there, there, and I see them in the ring, I said, "Boy, now, you know, people are training them wrong. They're not giving them the right idea. They're not giving them the right uh, training. But they're the one training them. They're the ones running the show. So it's not mine to interfere. I'll try to uh, interject some knowledge to them." But most of them is saying, "Oh yeah, watch this old dude. He, he's one of them. old dude, an old dude. Come on, I'll show you an old dude. <laughs> you just don't know how old this old dude is, man. Uh, you know, and and these guys are. You know, I've had a lot of guys uh, almost want to try me, almost, and they back out. And I tell them, I say, well, when it starts now, you got the first punch. I'm going to give you the first punch. The rest of it's mine. And I'm going to beat you so bad, your mama's not going to know you when you get out of that ring. Well, I didn't mean to upset you. You ain't upset me. I'm just telling you the facts beforehand, you know. And they just walk off. No, Doc, I don't want nothing to do with it. Well, don't come back over here and bother me. I'm busy signing pictures and signing my book. Don't call me fake. Read that book before you come telling me anything. I've been there and done that, and uh, let me tell you, I was a bounty hunter for 15 years. I have over 4,000 captures. Uh, you know, I'm not screwed up. I work in New York City at night, 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm the only guy up there on the street picking people up because that's when you find them. And everybody else scared to go, oh, boy, I'm not going up there. Somebody's going to scoot me. Well, yeah, that's what they do to you if you let them. But, you know, I love wrestling. I always have and always will. And uh, there's just a few people in there that, uh, my opinion, uh, shouldn't be near a wrestling ring. And uh, I won't even get into that. But, uh, you know, great business. I've always said it's a great business and got some great guys in there. Man, these guys work hard. A lot of them work real hard. And a lot of them, I don't know what they do, drive the car for somebody or something or tote their bags. <laughs> yeah, which is accurate. So we are very excited. We've got uh, the great, the legendary, the original doc, the original Doctor Death. Right? You would be the original. No, Doctor Death. Somebody put that Doctor Death in there. I had nothing to do with it. And they started calling me Doctor Death. I was like, no, 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 Doctor D, Doctor D, Doctor D. Okay. And uh, I wouldn't would yeah. correct them after you tell them two or three times. They still say it, so you just let them go. You know. You gotcha. But he will be making an appearance. Uh, first off, we're thrilled that he's with us. Be making an appearance for our old friend, the captain, Nick Massey. You heard Nick on our show last week. Uh, big event coming up. It's the Wrestling Classic number two taking place Saturday, April the 23rd. It goes 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. 
I can guarantee it'll go a little bit longer than two. I was at the first one. People were still there at three, four, and five o'clock. It was great. But look at the lineup. You've got Dr. D, David Schultz making a rare appearance. And I believe you've worked with Nick three or four times. Nick, super yes. complimentary of you, uh, loves dealing with you. Also got the great Tully Blanchard, Jake the Snake Roberts, Ron Simmons, Jeff Jarrett, Rikishi. Doink will be there. Uh, current wrestling stars will be there. Jay Lethal currently signed to AEW. The NWA Women's Tag Team Champions, Allison Kay and Marty Bell will be there. There is a host of talent. I encourage you, if you are anywhere within driving distance to the Doubletree Hartford taking place in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, make it, show up and be there. We have so many questions for you, David, uh, and we know that we have a limited window, but uh, I've got a bunch. I got to get this one out because I just mentioned it. You are a Tennessee boy. You, you're, you know, you are the guy. Nick is always talking about this barbecue restaurant right near the hotel called Bears Barbecue. What do you think? Well, but you're you're from Tennessee. What do you think about Connecticut barbecue? Well, I lived in Connecticut for about 17 years there, and uh, I, I just never really got great barbecue like you get in Tennessee. But you got a barbecue shop on every corner down here, so you got to be careful, you know. But they did have good barbecue. My wife liked barbecue, and she always liked it up in New Haven, Connecticut. I can't remember the place she got it, but she would, you know, go and get it for me. And uh, I was on the road so much, but uh, they got good barbecue down here now. They got, I, you know, I, I hadn't been many places they had bad barbecue. Because I think it just travels around the recipes and all, and everybody tries to perfect it, and they have all these cook-offs and everything, and uh, it's really in the sauce, I think. So, David, let me ask you, uh, amongst the different places that you worked, uh, you worked up uh, for a time in Calgary. Uh, You talked about being trained by Herb Welch, and, of course, one of the all-time great trainers uh, up there is the legendary Stu Hart. Tell us about your time up in Calgary. Uh, you enjoy yourself. Uh, was it uh, one of the better territories you worked? That kind of stuff. Well, Stu Hart, um, he was a promoter there, and uh, he treated me great. For three years, I was there. Never had a, one problem with him, not at all. And, uh, you know, stayed there three years. Had to build most of the time in three years. I'd lose it there once while well, drop it by accident somewhere or somebody or would it count fast or something would happen, but I'd get it back. You know, I, I, I got tired of carrying it sometime. But <laughs> and that's when Brett was getting started, Brett Hart. And, uh, you know, David Boy Smith, Dynamite Kid, and uh, Duke Myers, and Mr. Hito, and all these guys, uh, the Stomper, they was all coming through there. Who brought in a bunch of people. And, uh, you know, you had, a rough, you had a rough time five, six days a week. And you would drive 500 miles one day. Rass will get back in the car and drive 500 miles back. But that's the way the territory was. You know, a lot of space there. And cold, very cold. Uh, when you tell people it's 40 below zero up in Saskatchewan, and they say, oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. That, that's not wind chill, buddy. That's, that's 40 below. Wind chill about 80 below. Oh. <laughs> and, nice. you know, I love oh. it. I love it. I mean, Stu Hart treated me great three years. Uh, he always, a lot on time, never never lied to me, never 
mess me around or anything like a lot of promoters will do with guys, you know. Stu Hart was straight up and down because he was the type of guy, if you didn't like it, you you know, you can go in the dungeon. That's in the, in his training room down the bottom of the house where he lived. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not interested in going in the dungeon we used to. <laughs> well, well, David, let me, let me ask you, since you mentioned how much you liked working for Stu, uh, you also worked for a period uh, with uh, Don Owen out in Portland. So, yes, you know, it's very rare when you hear uh, guys in the wrestling business that will speak well of promoters. Uh, and Stu and Don Owen are, are two guys that are usually mentioned by, you know, the old school guys as as promoters that. You know, you could always depend on treating you fairly. Uh, you know, maybe you wouldn't get rich, but what they told you you were going to get paid, you usually got paid. So compare working for Don Owen and for Stu. Did you like either one better, or were they both just really good to you? I like Stu better. He's the, he he was the best promoter I ever worked for. Don Owen and Elton Owens, they were good. They was good. Don was better than Elton. I don't know, uh, but Don, after about three months, he figured that I was too rough on guys, and I was too big for his territory. Because, you know, Buddy Rose, I stood a foot taller than him. And then Rick Miller, I mean, whatever his name was, he, he supposed to be bad. And they had all these little guys, and, you know, I was a giant to them. And Don Owen said, uh, well, I don't know why you're in here as big as you are. Rocky Johnson was there. Of course, we had great matches. and uh, But it didn't work out. About six months, I had to go. Uh, it wasn't anything that I did wrong or anything, but uh, I told Don, this is not the place for me because, uh, you know, he said, well, it is a kind of a different, uh, you know, he, he was good to me. He treated me good, but it wasn't no three-year place. <laughs> it was just uh, hit and run. Gotcha. So in, in talking about Calgary, too, if I'm correct about this, you were both a heel and a baby face in Calgary. So how was that for you in that you had spent so much of your career working as a heel? But if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, you became the main event babyface for a while in the territory. Well, I became the babyface and I was going against the heels. But, uh, you know, I never did that. I actually wasn't a babyface. I was just going against the heel and they cheered me on. Uh, I mean, I don't know why they liked me so much, but they did. And uh, they always did up there at Calgary. And like I told you, we gave them their money's worth. Whoever I worked with, I worked with Nick Bockwinkle two or three times there for the championship belt. Uh, I, I, Harley Race, I believe he came in. I'm not sure if he came in there or another territory, but a lot of the people would come in and I'd work with them. And, uh, you know, the people wanting me, and they were supposed to be the good guys, but people wanted me. But I was the good guy. And, you know, I, I didn't do anything different. I did a little, I could get away with anything then. If I'm a baby face, I can do anything. They're still going to cheer me. <laughs> Obviously, but they it, saw it, through your lovable qualities, David, and that's why they cheered you. That's what I'm thinking, too. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm <laughs> Well, I'm glad we're on the same page there, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, let me ask you, you don't know this, Dr. D. David Schultz, but you are part of an exclusive club because about 30 plus years ago, I did an article on the 100 best matches of the entire decade, and yep. a Dr. D match was in my top 20, my man. Oh, you, it was. Yeah. 
you were in a match on July 1st in 1984 in Tokyo. It was a six-man tag with you, Dynamite, and Davey taking on Antonio Inoki, Tatsumi Fujinami, and the Cobra. Now, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna guess that you specifically remember that match, but can you tell us some memories of your time working for New Japan? Uh, was the travel just a bit much, or did you enjoy yourself? You know, I enjoyed it over there. I mean, uh, as soon as you go in there, they try you out, see what you know, if you know how to take care of yourself. And of course, I showed them I did. And I didn't have any more trouble the four or five times I was over there. Uh, Antonio Noki, the last time I was over there, Antonio Noki wanted me to let him win. I said, no, that's not going to happen. And uh, he said, uh, well, you know, you come back five more times. I said, well, you sign my contracts and we can talk about you winning or beat me if you can. And he said, oh, you know what program? Nope, 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 nope. You beat me if you can. And I've got the book and the match, and it was interpreted to me. And Anoki said it was one of the toughest matches he ever had. But, you know, still, if you got if you got a quarrel with each other, you don't ruin the match. You don't go out and screw the match up. Antonio Anoki knew I had him beat two or three times. And he had me hooked a couple of times. And you know when somebody got you hooked and they let you go. Uh, but the people, the fans don't know it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's yeah. about being professional. Oh, yeah. you got to take the match through. People there, they don't care about your quarrels. They don't care how much you hate this guy for real or not or whatever. They want to be entertained. That's what they pay big big dollars for to be entertained. And that's the reason you you, you keep it together and do your match. And, you know, you can let the guy know, hey, I got you, buddy. I used to do Hogan like that a lot, and he didn't like it. He told Vince that I was going to beat him on national TV. <laughs> and I said, you big dummy. <laughs> but that was when we was friends, and he was talking to me. You know, we were, we were very, good, very close friends at the first. And, uh, you know, it's, some, it's an art, man, for people to go out and entertain people. You want people to entertain. I mean, I've been at matches where some of the matches and people say, oh my God, what what was that out there? And you say to yourself, who is that in the ring? Where'd they get him? And, you know, but that's not the way it should be. It should be all professionalism all the way through. Have the people to enjoy the matches and when they get home, they're still talking about it. Next day at work, they're talking about it. That's when you've done your job. Yeah, absolutely, too. We we definitely agree with that. So if you are just joining us, we are very fortunate to have with us as a very special guest today, Dr. D. David Schultz. Be making a personal appearance at the Wrestling Classic 2 on April the 23rd, taking place at the Doubletree Hilton in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. Uh, we encourage everybody to go there. David, just talking to you a few minutes ago, and you mentioned that you will have copies of your book, Don't Call Me Fake the real story of Dr. D. David Schultz. First off, anybody that uh, is thinking of calling Dr. D. fake, I, I encourage you to go to YouTube, see what happens <laughs> if you do. Uh, you may not, you may want to rethink that strategy, but I loved your book. First off, what I loved about your book, there was a lot of that I liked about it. First off, you don't give a shit. You, you're not here to kiss anyone's ass for a job. You're speaking honestly the way you saw things and from your heart. But you're also yep. giving us a new, which is great because so many people are kissing someone else's ass for the hope of getting a job. You clearly are not. 
Uh, yep. And what I also liked about it was you do go into your bounty hunting, which I find fascinating. What's the best bounty hunting story you can share with us? Well, uh, the best one was, uh, a matter of fact, is out of New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, this one guy had these two girls kidnapped. And for three years, the FBI had no idea where they were. And they called me up and had me come down to the office and said, listen, we need you to find this guy for us. Wait a minute. You're talking about the FBI and you're talking about me. Me. One person. And you want me, three years you've been looking for him. You got him scared to death with the girls. And you want me to find him. Okay. They promised me X number of dollars if I'd let them make the arrest when I found him. Well, I found him in three months. It was San Juan, Puerto Rico. And uh called up the I told him to come get him. And the girls was with him, both girls. And they blew it. The FBI, they blew it. They had the San Juan police come walking up. This guy was a drug dealer. This guy was a rapist. He was a con man. He was he was a kidnapper. He got people on the street, every corner. They knew everything was going on. And if you walk down the street, they know you're coming. So the FBI, they all come in there. One guy come from the north, one come from the east. They'd be walking down the street with shotguns down to Cadado area in San Juan. Well, time they got there, he was gone. Out the back door into the water, boom, gone. So I called and told him, I said, that's it. I'll do it myself next time. You're not going to mess it up on the next time. So about a month later, I got a call from my informant down there and told me, David, I know where they're at. Okay. Uh, I'll meet you down there. I went down. I trusted this girl explicitly because she was worried about the girls when he was treating them and beating them and everything and using them and selling them and everything he could do. For and um, anyway, I went down there and I uh, had to check in with uh, the feds and they said, come on, we'll go with you this time. And he put me in the car. We went down. We hit the door. I went in the front door. Larry, I said, Larry, listen, I'm about to be David Short. You're under arrest. He tried to get out the door, and I jumped over the door and grabbed him. And they, two cops come through the door with shotguns. Oh, what? Wait a minute, amigo, don't shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> we got him, and we got the two girls, and uh, got them all back safe and sound. Uh, the feds extradited him because he was on special people and all that. But the girls, I brought one girl back. The other girl came in the next week because they had a child out of wedlock. And I agreed to let her stay there. But I brought the one back on the big bond, and their parents hadn't seen either one of them in three years. And then the FBI got mad because I didn't use them. Well, I used you once. You blew it. So I did it myself, you know. And uh, that was one of the, you know, it took me, it took me about three, four months to locate him. But this guy was sharp, and I mean, most of them are sharp. And when I say sharp, people don't have no idea what I'm talking about. Sharp. They're not stupid, in other words. I mean, you know, I was running one guy in Mobile. We run down, we run the telephone. We got the telephone he was using. It went to a house. We hit the house, the police and me, we hit the house. Went in there, nothing but a telephone in that, in that apartment. And he was having all of his calls forwarded. And, you know, it'd go to that phone and be forwarded to his, his phone. That was before the cell phones and all that, you know. 
and uh, you know they just know how to use the system. Everything about it. They weren't that good though. I don't think I ever missed anybody. Wow. Hmm. I got everybody eventually. David, as you were telling that story about uh, you know the the FBI wanting you to go down and uh, and get that guy, uh, remind me of the old statement. Uh, Things you don't want to believe is uh, uh, we're from the government and we're here to help you. <laughs> so it just doesn't yeah, always work. Exactly. Doesn't always work out that way. So you know, uh, earlier, David, I don't know how we're going to top those uh, bounty hunting stories, but earlier you were talking about how you'd gotten title shots with uh, with Nick Bockwinkel and and Harley Race, and and both, of course, just absolute legends of the wrestling business. Nick, always known for being so smooth and so technically proficient, Harley. Uh, one of the all-time great tough guys, uh, you know, uh, a great champion. So, Nick Bockwinkel and Harley Race, which one did you enjoy working better? I enjoyed working with uh, Nick because, like you said, he was so smooth with everything. He was just, you know, he was a, a great worker. Now, Harley, I don't think that was a championship match for me and Harley, but it was it was a single match. And Harley, he's like uh, uh, Bro Bruiser Brody. I mean, he can be as tough as you want him to be, or he can be as easy as you want him to be. But you're going to have a good match with him. He's going to make you have a good match. And Nick, you had to work with him. And, uh, you know, it was smooth and easy, but he's so technical. And, uh, you know, uh, you can't bring something out of the air on him because... What the hell are you doing? <laughs> it was always funny. We talked a lot about it. Uh, I have three matches with him, I believe, in uh, Calgary. And uh, Harley Race, I don't know if that was BC or Calgary. I worked with him that time, a long time ago. But, you know, he was a great worker. But, I mean, he could take care of himself, too. Both of them could take care of themselves in their own way. But, I could take care of myself too. And they knew that. And I had no problem. Had no problem. It, it was great, you know. Uh, I, I've, I've worked with, I guess I've worked with all of them. I mean, I was thinking the other day how many, how many times I put my boots on and off. Uh, you know, it's unreal. <laughs> Everybody thinks I did it one time. But I've been there and done that. And, you know, and wrote the and book. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The book, the book come out fantastic. We didn't want to put no bad stuff in there about anybody or anything. We just wanted to do a book about me, and it's absolutely true. Everything in this book is true, and I've never had anybody to say that they didn't like the book. And I mean, even people that don't like me, but they never say that, and they buy the book. Oh, it was great, man. I enjoyed reading it. Oh my God, my wife loved it. Yeah, well. I did too. And, uh, you know, I thought about writing another one. I've been working on another one, but I'm, I don't know if I want to write it or not because what I would tell or what I would say would destroy a lot of people in the business or give them bad, you know, their families, their kids and all that. And I don't want to do that. I'm not the type guy to do that, but that's the only way I could write another book is really tell the bad stuff about all the wrestlers I wrestled with and where they been. And my wife said, you don't need to do that. <laughs> okay. Yes, baby. <laughs> yes, dear. So, <laughs> I, you know, uh, she's the boss, you know, happy wife, happy oh. life. Oh, I know that, my man. <laughs> yeah, I'm divorced, so I don't know 54, it. Yeah. 54 years. Oh, God bless I'm, you. 
That's a long yeah. time. Uh, you know, but we went to junior high school together, and uh, we're still together. And uh, you know, and she was always the type. All the wrestlers loved her. She never talked about anybody she's seen in any parties or anything. Like somebody was with another person, she she would tell me that ain't his wife. Hey, I don't know nothing about it. You don't know nothing. About it. Don't open your mouth about anybody because you don't know what their situation is. Maybe they like that. Maybe they do that. Maybe that's them. Don't talk about it. She never did. Never. Not one time. And uh, none of the, none of her business. All my business. You know, people do what they got to do, and they do it, and that's it. You know. But it's going to be a great day on the twenty third, though. I noticed a lot of names you went off with there on the twenty third. I might get me a fight up there. Well, and and that would be that would definitely make headlines. So I I'm gonna steal a question that my partner usually asks. We How sometimes dare reverse. You? How exactly. Dare you? And I well, Jeff, I owe you for this one. I am pickpocketing this question, but think about it. Am I asking the right guy? I think I am. So one of the questions that we normally ask our guests is you're walking down an alley and there's four guys coming your way. Who do you make, want? Make it make it six guys. Well, that's true. It is Doctor D. I'll make it six. It's a solid half dozen, Jeff. <laughs> They're walking six your way. What'd you say? Six guys coming at me in an alley. Six guys coming at you in an alley. You can have only one person by your side. I also realize I'm asking one of the toughest professional wrestlers ever in the history of the business, but that's the reason I'm asking. Who who do you consider to be removing yourself? Who was the toughest guy in professional wrestling? Hatu. That's a name we've heard before, Bear. Oh yeah, many times. Yes, we have. Uh, let me tell you, he is he is bad to the bone, and he don't play. Uh, I mean, you know, I seen him in Nashville. I think he beat up three or four truck drivers at a truck stop by himself. Left them laying there where Nick Gula said. Oh, get this guy out of here, man. They're going to lock him up. They got to kill them guys. Well, they jumped him, you know. But he is the only guy that I wouldn't want to get in the ring with if he was mad at me for some reason. But he'd never have a reason to be mad at me. We're great friends, uh, you know. But I know my limits, and I know the only way I could beat him is shooting. And then he might get mad. Well, you don't want, he's a guy you definitely don't want to get mad. That's for sure. Well, I tell you what, if you, we, him, if you shoot him, he'll get mad. Now he's probably the toughest guy in the business. I don't know anybody else that, that will come close to him because most people, you know, they're not tough at all. They think they are, but they're not. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. as we wrap up uh, this uh, this interview, and hey, David, we can't thank you enough, uh, and thanks our our friend Nick for for hooking us up with you. Uh, really had a good time doing this. I'm a, I'm gonna now steal my partner Barry Rose's what question? Yes, yes, Mister. So David Schultz, Barry Rose, and I have flown into where you live. We got the Lear jet; it's fully gassed up. It can take you anywhere in the world for a good place to eat. You've been all over the world on your travels as a pro wrestler. What's that one restaurant, David Schultz, that you said, boys, we got this plane gassed up. We're going to where? Oh, it'd be Tokyo, probably Tokyo, Japan. 
I don't know the name of it. But then I think about it, you know, the day that they, they got real dim lights in there and they had the meat sliced real thin and they had the grill in front of you and you're, you're eating it, you're browning it and cooking it in front of you and everything. And they're passing around this, uh, sake, uh, whiskey, which I don't drink anyway, but I was, I was doing the job on the food. And the next day I come out and, uh, guys on the bus said, Oh, you, uh, uh, like your food last night? I said, oh, yeah. I got up this morning counting like this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and the guy laughed. He said, oh, yeah, Dr. D. Oh, yeah. One, two, three. I said, no, just oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if they meant it was horse. If it was, it was delicious. <laughs> but, well, uh, listen, you know, David, we had a, have yeah. had a great Great time talking you, with you. All the top-notch mafia people in that restaurant, you know it had to be good. I'll take your word for you it. <laughs> you know, the sponsors and all that. You oh, know? yeah. Guy, guys missing fingers, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they push them all. I mean, yeah, I heard stories about their suicide rates so high because they push them off the building. Somebody do something bad, they take them off the building and push them off. Oh, no, the suicide. I don't know if it's be true or not, but. Actually, yeah. you just, you remind me, I'm going to ask you one more question if I can. When okay. you worked over in New Japan, you, you mentioned, <laughs> I, you mentioned working with Anoki. Who was who the best guy that you worked with uh, when you were over in Japan? Which Japanese guy did you enjoy working best with? Oh my goodness. I couldn't hardly, I can't hardly remember that because Anoki was, was the top guy and Baba, he was, he wasn't near the worker as Anoki was. Baba. Yeah. But, you know, the young guys underneath that I was working with, a lot of them fantastic workers, but I couldn't remember their name. You know, that's been mm -hmm. a good time ago. I mean. Oh, yeah. No, I get it. So, well, listen, once, once again, David, I was going to say, once again, we do appreciate your time. We want to encourage all our listeners to go out there to Nick's big event in Hartford. Uh, go talk, go up and talk to uh, the doctor and tell him you heard him here on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. And uh, we're going to continue to plug uh, your appearance until uh, until the uh, the date uh, that it's scheduled to happen. And we encourage you to uh, to hit David up for one of his copies of his book. Uh, David, might I ask, are autographs available? Oh yes, 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 yes. If you buy one of my books, you get a personal autograph from me. Now, pictures of me and pictures will be there on the table. The promoter takes care of all the pictures because I can't, you know, I can't multicast that good, you know, because yeah. the books, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost, I think I've sold 5,000 books uh, and, you know, I don't get no TV experience with the books. I just sell them at the events and stuff. Up in Amazon, of course, they sell them in uh, Australia, Germany, all that. And I don't have nothing to do with that either, but you get an autograph copy, if you might, from me at the event. And I'm going to have them there. If they buy them or not, I'm still going to have them there. Well, there you go. So, well, what, David, thanks again so much for joining us, my man. We do appreciate your time. All right. I appreciate y'all calling me. I'm down here in the old southern Tennessee. We got storms coming again. Let me see tomorrow night. We have uh, we have a bunch of tornado stuff around here, you know. But uh, we always we always dodge it some way so far. All right. Well, we'll batten down the hatches. All right. You take care. Good talking okay. to you. you All too. right. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Barry, it's time for another uh, list. However, because I'm a giver, is that true, Barry? You are. We're we're both givers, but thank you, you thank you. But in this case, I'm a bigger a giver, giver uh, because I know how much you love a good top ten list. But this time, Barry, I'm giving you a top six list. Ooh, oh. because I'm a giver, Barry. Right off the top of your head, if I was to ask you, what is your all-time favorite Burt Reynolds film? <sighs> Excellent job of blowing into your microphone there. I was trying to. It's, I'm trying. You are to nothing if not professional. Oh yeah, that that's a tough one right there. It ah shit, it's gonna come down to two. I like them all, especially if you're going back to the early Burt Reynolds, Gator, all that shit. But it's gonna come down to the Longest Yard or Smokey and the Bandit. Has to. Okay. So ah, Sharky's Machine. Wait a minute. Ah, you got a third one in there. Choice, however. Uh, all right. We are going to offer up Burt Reynolds' six definitive films as uh, voted by uh, ooh, uh, Far Out, uh, the Far Out website. Uh, let's see here. He has, uh, first of all, listed 1972 Deliverance. Oh, my God. You squeal like a pig, boy. Scared an entire generation of men from ever going camping. <laughs> and the state of Georgia. And... <laughs> And I moved there. Georgia. I'm not sure what that means about me. So. Yeah. Well, you're over the fear, but uh, or what? What does that mean about you? Yes, but I'll tell you what: camping in the deep woods and corn on the cob was another thing I was scared of for years. This is a what? What makes Deliverance stand out is the impact. And Jeff just said it: it's the impact it had on you when this movie was released. And and you know what? The same as Jaws. You know, there were so many people that wouldn't even go near a beach when the movie Jaws was released. This did the same thing for camping and being in the deep woods. So, yes, excellent, excellent choice. 1972 done by John Borman, who made some uh, excellent yes. films. Uh, uh, I know he did, uh, I believe, Excalibur, which is a movie that I really love. Yes, yes, but, no, uh, this movie also starring, uh, besides Bert, uh, Ned Beatty, uh, John Voight, Ronnie Cox, uh, of course, there was the iconic scene with a kid playing banjo with Ronnie Cox. Uh, that was just an it is about four guys who take a camping trip and they want to go whitewater rafting uh, down this particular river uh, because the river uh, is going to be, uh, you know, they're going to dam it up and uh, to create some sort of a reservoir. Interesting, Barry, since I have come to Georgia, one of the things that uh, the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin and I have done along with the kids is to go whitewater rafting. We've done it on two occasions, including Uh-oh. a part of the river that was filmed in Deliverance. Uh, now, of course, obviously, uh, the section that they uh, they were on has been, uh, you know, the, they hit it with a dam, but there's still a section that you can ride the rapids on. And, uh, you know, it's funny, riding, uh, uh, have you ever done whitewater rafting, by the way? No, I've done, I've gone down. Uh, I've you floated in a, a pond, river. right? Yeah, you pretty much. That's exactly what it was. I've never done what you did now. So no. So what they do is they grade <laughs> the rapids on a scale of one to five. Uh, five is uh, hold on to your fucking hats because there's a good chance you might die. Uh, you know, but four is like, you're going to get a nice little thrill. You're going to go over some falls and it's like, hang on. Cause uh, if you don't, and the, you know, I, I'm going to tell you they they give you plenty of fucking instruction and warnings. Like, don't be a dumbass. Uh, and you know, really to get hurt, or uh, injured seriously, you really got to be pretty fucking stupid. Uh, but, uh, you know, th- again, the further you go up that one to five scale, uh, the more precautions you have to take 
Uh, we did one, I want to say, in uh, Tennessee, uh, and we did one uh, in northern Georgia. Uh, but yeah, if you ever get a chance to do that, it is absolutely, you know, like uh, it's like if you do a morning or afternoon, it's an afternoon where afterwards you go, wow, I'm really glad I did that because it's it's very thrilling. So this movie. Uh, getting back to the movie, of course, the the scene we're referring to, for those of you out there who have never seen Deliverances, eh, there's a scene where Ned Beatty uh, is emasculated, if you will, by a couple of hillbillies. Uh, you got a pretty mouth. And uh, it uh, does not end well for Ned. Uh, and uh, Burt Reynolds, kind of the alpha male. Uh, would I be fair in saying that, Bear? Oh, absolutely. He's the, yeah. he's the alpha male of the group. Yeah, he's like the outdoorsman and stuff like that who has to basically uh, help his buddies survive. Yeah. Uh, as they're attacked by these backwoodsmen. And in its own way, uh, there there are scenes in this movie that are every bit as uh, scary as any friggin' horror movie that you've ever seen. So uh, I think it's easy, uh, too, with that, Jeff. I mean, because the truth was, I saw this as a kid, and this might have been other wait, than... Wait, the, your parents took you to see a movie where there was a rape? Yeah, <laughs> Again, with, quality with parenting by the Rose family. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's other than The Exorcist, which I've discussed on the show, which I do think this film also scared you because uh, as a little kid, I what, what year was this? Uh, 72. 72, so I would have been eight years old. And uh, I believe this was at the same drive-in where my parents took me to see The Exorcist. And I was frightened. I was really scared. I read an article about this film a few years back, and I believe a lot of the locals that are shown in the film were legitimate locals. These weren't actors. And the kid playing the banjo was discovered by John Borman, if I remember correctly, as they were scouting out locations for this film. And the the, the kid was legitimately a, you know, a, a I guess, uh, uh, what, do you, what would you call him? A hillbilly? I uh, guess that'd be a fair term. Yes. Fair term, a nice term. Hillfolk, hillfolk, hill how about that? But it was, he was legit, and I want to say they had found him, and he was still alive. I believe he has, uh, you know, I, I believe he was on the spectrum in some form. I don't think that was, uh, that was gimmicked for the movie where, you know, he did look very odd, but uh, there's, there's the background to the story of making this film is really interesting. And I want to say there might even be a documentary on it. There was something, either a very lengthy article, but it, this film, what they had to go through to make it, it, it was epic. Yeah. Now, that, uh, again, the thing that's interesting is there is the, uh, the one scene that is completely terrifying, and the rest of the movie is like a really, really good, solid adventure story of these guys making it down the rapids, uh, you know, uh, going going over the falls and and having yeah. to hang on, and it's a it's a thrill ride. And then, like you know, you're going, wow, it's a really good adventure movie. I really like this story. And then it's like, holy shit, you're just plunged into this absolutely terrifying scene where they're accosted by the uh, the couple of hillbillies. And by the way, the guy that played uh, you know, Mister, uh, you sure got a pretty mouth, is a guy that was. Uh, one of the staples of Clint Eastwood's uh, acting troupe. Uh, I can't think of it. It's, uh, is that Jeffrey Lewis? No, no, no. Jeffrey, no, no. Jeffrey Lewis was part. I want to say the guy's name was William something. I can't think of it, but he was, he was an outlaw Josie Wales. Uh, he was the guy that was hunting Josie. Uh, and, uh, but he's like a, a veteran actor that's been like a million things. And literally at this point, like if I told you, oh yeah, it's this guy that played in this movie, you'd go, no, it's this not. isn't the guy who just died, William. Remember that guy? Was it William Smith? 
who just died? No, 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 no. It, Wiggs okay. was a completely different guy. Uh, but okay. uh, great actor too. But no, not him. Uh, uh, maybe we could have uh, Lou look it up. Uh, uh, he was in the Outlaw Josie Wales as uh, I want to say they call him uh, like Blue Legs or something like that. That was his character's name because he he was a a union officer that was searching for uh, Josie Wales. But anyway, getting back to the Burt Reynolds list. So next on the list, you referenced the sequel, which was Gator. The original from 1973 was White Lightning. Yes. And this was, I, you know, you talk about seeing a movie as a kid. I went for my 12th birthday to the venerable Town Mall in Plantation, Florida, mm-hmm. uh, with my uh, buddy Kevin Fellman. Shout out to Kevin wherever you are 50 years later. Um, and saw Burt Reynolds' Gator McCluskey in uh, White Lightning. Uh, and Barry, so many uh, who have uh, Bo Hopkins was in this movie. Uh, I forget the name. Uh, Ned Beatty played the corrupt sheriff that uh, the Gator was sent out uh, by the feds to search for and to get evidence on him. But uh, there's, uh, yeah, so much. The one scene as a 12 year old kid that really stuck with me is when uh, Gator uh, is invited uh, by Bo Hopkins' girlfriend to uh, get a taste of that. Uh, Shaky pudding, as she calls it. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he in fact par, uh, did partake in that shaky pudding. If you know what I'm talking about, Bear. Sweet Lou checking in, Jeff. Bill, Bill. McKinney, yes, that it is who was uh, a guy that had a real lengthy career, like something like 30 or 40 years as a veteran character actor, and he is the guy uh, in uh, in Deliverance that says you uh, you sure got a pretty mouth. But uh, anyway, getting back to White Lightning, Barry. Uh, what do you think of White Lightning? Loved it. And I I liked White Lightning and Gator. White Lightning currently on Tubi, if I'm correct, uh, as I've been flipping around channels late at night looking for something to watch. And White Lightning does appear on there. Now, was White Lightning the one where... No, that's I'm wrong. It was a different Burt Reynolds. I was was thinking of when he slapped the girlfriend. That's actually the longest yard, though, right? Uh, could be. Doesn't could he get be. arrested for roughing up his girlfriend? Yes, or something. And I think his girlfriend, uh, if I'm not mistaken, because she had like literally about a 30 second part, might have been. Uh, an, I think her first name was Anitra, and she ended up being one of the uh, the girls on The Price Is Right. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think good that trivia. was her. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but no, in this one, he plays a guy who's in prison for uh, for running moonshine. And the feds come to him after his brother mysteriously disappears and dies. And they say, we, you know, we think that the sheriff was involved. He's uh, he's taking money from the guys who are doing moonshine. And uh, what, who else is in this movie? Like, uh, uh, is it R.G. Armstrong? There's just a ton of great character actors in this movie. Uh, but another one, really a fun popcorn movie. This was when Burt was absolutely at the height of his powers, Bear. Yeah, and Sweet Lou checking in again, Anitra Ford. There you go. Yep. So he does know his stuff. Yeah, Bert, Bert was. Look, Bert was the biggest box office draw, I believe, of the 1970s, right? Uh, that would he? be very fair, yeah. By yeah. the way, Barry, uh, you will be interested in noting uh, from this article, uh, it is said Quentin Tarantino uh, borrowed from this movie for his own films of Kill Bill and Inglorious Bastards uh, as far as the visual narrative and the score adding to the experience. So next, 1974, Barry, you just mentioned it. It is the original, the original, not that godforsaken Adam Sandler remake. Oh, no. Who buys Adam Sandler as a credible athlete? Burr Reynolds, former, uh, I believe, defensive back from uh, Florida State University uh, back in the day, as they say. But uh, in 1974, Robert Aldrich directed him in The Longest Yard. 
what a great film too. What an iconic film. What a great film that to this day is still great. And you know what makes this film great? Story's great. It's got a great ending. You're obviously rooting for the inmates. You hate the guards. But look at the supporting cast of this film. If It has got every great character actor of the 1970s. I, I don't think they're missing one. You've got Ed Lauder, who plays, uh, I think he's the head guard. Uh, you, do you, you know who I'm talking about? The guy was in a million movies, always played a bad guy. What was the... What was Eddie Albert was the warden. Eddie Albert. What was his friend's name? Uh, uh, James Hampton. Yeah. What, what, what was the character's name? Uh, was it uh, like caretaker or something like that? I think it was caretaker. James Hampton was uh, the father in Teen Wolf, but another yes. guy that did every fucking love boat. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, no, he was love American yeah. style, whatever it was in the 70s. James Hampton was working. Just the whole cast is great. Nettie Albert, uh, who I think lived to be almost 100 years old as well. Yep. Solid actor. Great movie. I think this is my favorite when it comes to Burt. So the guy that you haven't mentioned that I thought was great was Robert Tessier. Uh, Robert Tessier was a great, uh, a ball-headed character actor who was in the Charles Bronson film Hard Times, which, by the way, I just watched yesterday. Connie and, Shockley? Is that yes. what it was? Yes. And, and uh, he was also in The Deep uh, as uh, one of the, one yes, of the muscle right. guys. Uh, had, a, had a really good character actor career. Ball-headed tough guy. Uh, just looked like young, a guy. had to die young, right? Yeah, I believe so. But look like a guy you didn't want to fuck with. The uh, here's a great uh, character actress that you forgot playing the beehived secretary of Eddie Elbert, uh, Bernadette Peters. Bear Bernadette Peters, who was uh, I believe romantically linked with Bert at one point. Well, I mean, what actress? Who, who, that's any good point. Was not <laughs> good point in the seventies. They were all linked to Bert. Yeah. which is why he was Bert in the 70s. Uh, Bert, also the first to ever pose nude for Playgirl, I believe. Uh, uh, I believe so, you might be correct on that. Yeah, he was really... Uh, kids today will never understand just how big Bert was in the 1970s. Literally, by the mid-80s, a lot of that had trailed off. Uh, he it was, was Cosmo, making, not Playgirl, by the way. Was Thank it Cosmo? Lou. All right. Lou, Play an Girl. avid reader of Cosmopolitan back in the day, so he corrected you, so... That's a, well, you know, look, somebody's got to be reading Cosmopolitan, but <laughs> there, there was what a great, uh, and what's his name? Richard Keel, right? Jaws yes. from the Bond movies yes. was in this. I broke uh, his freaking neck. Yeah, I broke his freaking, I think he broke his freaking neck. <laughs> what a great movie. What is, what a great, great, great movie. Uh, others that were in the cast, uh, they, they managed to secure a bunch of guys that had played in the NFL, uh, Joe Cap. Uh, played one of the prison guards. Ray yes. Nitschke was the uh, the crazy middle linebacker. They end up hitting in the balls uh, with, with the pass because he's being so ruthless. Uh, there was uh, a couple guys I think they were, played for the uh, maybe the Rams or the Cowboys. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, there was uh, then there was uh, the guy that played Granville, the uh, the older black uh, inmate. Uh, All yes. I want to do is play football, you know, because uh, they were trying to divide them by the uh, the black and white inmates and. Uh, so, you know, the, the one older black guy that wanted to play on the team was getting uh, shit from the other younger black inmates. And he's like, Hey man, all I want to do is play football. But uh, no, the longest yard is a terrific, terrific film. As Barry said, lots of uh, great uh, actors supporting and character actors. Uh, Bert, by the way, getting a golden globe nomination uh, for his work in the prestigious oh. best actor category. So next Barry, 
Uh, you can't talk about Burt in the 1970s and not talk about Smokey and the Bandit. You can't. And look, I I do think I like the longest yard better, but the impact that Smokey and the Bandit, this falls into uh, epic movies of the 70s. If you were alive at any point, which is really if you're alive at any point, <laughs> makes it, right? <laughs> Let's break that down shout for a minute. Out, shout out to our dead listeners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess that makes a lot of sense. Nobody's going to comment on that one. No, but if you... <laughs> All right, I guess we're done for the day now. If good you night, were... everybody. Good night, everybody. If you were alive when Smokey and the Bandit came out, you you knew about it. I, I don't care what country you lived in. I don't care where you were. This was this was the cover of of every magazine. This was the talk of every television show. You could you couldn't turn on the news. I don't know how much this move, how much money this movie made during its day. But Smokey and the Bandit, I think, was had to be one of the biggest films of the 70s. Easy. And in relation to today, I wonder how much money it would have made. Wow, it's you're right. The cultural impact, I, I think it's hard to explain to People of a certain age, like just as an example, you know, like my kids, you know, like uh, my daughter's in her late 20s. My my son's like 32. I don't know if you can explain to somebody of that age group how uh, and it seems really. But think about the cultural impact that sort of I don't want to say redneck cinema, but like the whole countrification. Is that a word like because you had Smoking the Bandit? Uh, you had all the, you know, you convoy, uh, then you had urban cowboy where the country pop slash rock. I mean, like even early on, the Eagles were thought of more as a country rock band than a rock band, you know, where they did like peaceful, easy feeling and, and songs and desperado people thought of them more as a country band than a rock band. And, uh, and then here's something, uh, Barry, we've never talked about this show before. Uh, I don't believe Barry, were you a fan of Hee Haw? Yeah, I was a fan of Hee Haw. Not, okay. I know that you were huge, but yeah, I was. Oh, no, no. So Hee Haw, try explaining to people how Hee Haw ended up becoming a network show. You know, how do I explain to my daughter or my son? Yeah, this show was, you know, like I thought it was essentially a, a corn pone countrified version of laughing that's what the original right. concept of the show was and it was so popular especially in let's be honest southern states that when uh, i believe it was on cbs when cbs took the show off the air after eh, like maybe four years it lasted like another decade in syndication because the show was it made huge stars out of roy clark and buck owens who were the hosts of the show uh you know but every big name country uh, loretta lynn uh, you know, all these people, you know, people of that stature in the world of country music would come on this show and they would they would not only sing and, you know, they got a new song, they're pushing a new song, but they take part in like the dumb jokes, you know, and, you know, most of them are like, you go, oh, my God, that's a bad joke. But they had their appeal, uh, you know, uh, and actually, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, I think we did discuss Hee Haw because we talked about. The guy, I don't know if we talked about this on the air or off the air, about the guy that was friends with Grandpa Jones. He was his next door neighbor that was murdered. Remember that, Barry? Oh, yeah, yeah. We talked I about think, that. Yeah, yeah. I think that so, was uh, off air, but yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, but this movie had such a cultural impact that lasted not just through 1977, 
But, you know, as we mentioned, all the first of all, there was like three different, uh, you know, like part two and part three, which were not nearly as good as the original. OK. Yeah. And part of the appeal of the original was not only Burt Reynolds, but, you know, Jerry Reed, Sally Field, of course, J the great Jackie Gleason uh, as uh, Chef Buford T. Justice, uh, you know, uh, but other lots of great, uh, you know, Paul Williams and uh, who is it? Pat McCormick as the uh, I, don't, I don't know if they were supposed to be father and son or or what. But, uh, yeah, just loads of great, uh, you know, like kind of like people just walking on there. And and uh, what was the other the dog? Uh, he had a, like a basset hound that, that Jerry Reed drove with him. And that song, uh, Eastbound and Down by Jerry Reed, was just a monster crossover hit because the movie was so popular. And everybody after this movie wanted to go out and get a freaking Trans Am because that's what uh, Burt Reynolds drove in this movie with the, uh, as my brother called it, the screaming chicken across the uh, the front of the <laughs> the front of the hood that was the the black Trans Am uh, with the the badass engine. It was used like a four hundred, and uh, you know it certainly got an entire nation of guys uh, plenty of speeding tickets. That's all I'm going to say. So next, Barry, 1979. We're still in the 70s with Bert here, starting over with Jill Clayburgh. Did you ever see this one? Yeah. So what happened here, and this is where. Uh, I, I would imagine, especially our demographic at that stage, certainly you could look at this movie now and it's totally different. But Bert to us back in the 70s as kids, Bert was an action adventure hero. And Bert was a, Bert was the coolest guy alive. Bert was our he was our our idol in a sense and that he was the coolest guy alive. And then he made this movie with Jill Clayburg, which was not a traditional Burt Reynolds movie. I don't know how well it did, but I can tell you from my standpoint, I did see this movie because of Burt. And at 15 years old, when this movie came out, this is the last fucking thing I wanted to see, right? So I hated this movie. Very similar to a movie that he did with Sally Field. Fields? Field? Is, it, is there a name? Field. Field. Sally Field, a couple of years later. Do you remember that movie? which was, and I think he was dating Sally Field at the time. What a horrible movie that was. But we didn't want, you know, th this is the thing about typecasting. If you've got an audience and your audience wants to see you do something, you know, more respect to you that you don't want to be pigeonholed as an actor. But at the same time, you know, if I open up a restaurant and I'm serving steak and uh, I decide that one night, uh, well, I'm going to serve uh, a, a chicken breast instead of a rump steak, you know, it, and then people say, I see well, what I don't you did there. That was very I know you did. I, I know you saw it, that people then look at it and go, well, I came here to eat steak. Well, you know, more power to you. You're right. So Bert, Bert started making these movies, trying to branch out as an actor. I, I'm not a fan at all. And Bert's a fine actor, but I want to see Bert kick some ass. That's what I want to see. So as I'm sitting here listening to you, it reminds me of the line. I'm going to tie this all together, believe it or not. Uh, the line from the Bruce Springsteen song of Badlands. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. King's not satisfied till he, till he rules everything. What you have is you have an actor in Burt Reynolds who was making tons of friggin' money. Yeah. He, and was, you know, accepted. And he decided, I want to make a drama. I want to be a serious actor. Like I did in Deliverance, which he was very successful. He wanted to go back to that. It reminds me, think about the, the career that Jim Carrey had as a comedic actor. He decided he wanted to be a, a serious actor. Will Ferrell had a tremendous run, <clears throat> excuse me, as a, as a comedic actor. He decided he wanted to be a serious actor. Uh, it's like, why are you like cutting your nose to spite your face? 
And in some ways, I'll tell you what, starting over, which I liked, it was a good movie. Uh, had a really good cast. Let me just give you some of the people that ran it besides Bert, uh, Joe Clayberg, as I said, who I believe, I don't know if she won the Academy Award or she was nominated for the Academy Award in a movie called An Unmarried Woman. Uh, but it also, uh, Candace Bergen, Charles uh, Charles Durning, uh, let's see, uh, who else? Mary Kay Place. So, you know, really good cast in this movie. The movie that I like better than this, believe it or not, was a movie, I think it was with Beverly D'Angelo called Paternity. Uh, that yeah. that was one. I, I, I really enjoyed that film, and, and uh, I would have rather seen that mentioned here. So next we go, the last film, uh, before I get to the last film, you know, we've talked about Sharky's Machine. Uh, and I know we we posted some comments about it in the group a, a long time ago, and there were some people that weren't as big of fans. And in that one, even though Bert was doing drama as opposed to the cute little uh, action movie, it was like Bert as a uh, action badass, not like a serious. Uh, I want to I want to be on the stage and be a theater performer. Like he kind of wasn't starting over. Uh, this was more like a, an action film. Uh, where he's a cop trying to take down a, a big drug kingpin who's also uh, he's he's using the horrors and uh, Bert can't have that. Uh, but uh, so I, I would have put that in there uh, maybe over starting uh, starting over or uh, you know maybe like I mentioned Paternity, which is another uh, Burt Reynolds film that I like. That was more that was more like kind of light comedy where he was a guy that wanted to have a kid and he met Beverly D'Angelo. So the last film is uh, the la I want to say the last great movie Bert ever made because he was starting to get much older. Uh, and he was nominated, as I recall, uh, for the Academy Award as Best Supporting Actor in Paul Thomas Anderson's 1997 Boogie Nights, which was, uh, holy shit, what a great movie Boogie Nights was, Barry. Yeah, and he did. So this was the reinvention of Burt, right? This Absol- is kind of Absolutely, what, yeah. Like what John Travolta has done multiple times, and I, I guess we're due for another one with John Travolta at any time. But Burt, uh, this was the reinvention. And what, what was smart about this is that Bert wasn't the centerpiece of the movie. Bert was essentially a supporting player, but in doing so, in a lot of ways, he kind of steals the movie, right, with his character. So very smart on his part. Uh, I heard that Bert was very difficult to work with. I read that. Uh, I don't have any insider info. I'm not a Hollywood guy. I'm not like Rick Nathan out in California working for uh, for the the big companies, but Rick, we're going to expect a little intel on this now that now that your name has been dropped. That or 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 at least some or breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry the TV show. Uh, <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, so <laughs> inevitable, inevitable. And we'll add Sweet Lou to this. We'll all become TV stars. It's it should be exactly what should happen. But with that, Bert Bert stole this movie. Apparently, he was very tough to work with on set. Because he uh, Bert Bert was a guy, I guess he was known for the majority of his career and possibly life for having a short fuse that uh, Bert was not a guy that you were going to fuck up and fuck around with too much. He wasn't going to put up with that kind of shit. And I guess there was some he was not the type of guy that stuttering John would have done well on the red carpet with back in the Howard Stern days. (laughs) The cool thing about Bert, too. Bert would have punched stuttering John right in the face, right? Probably, like Bert, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Bert did not. That was the other thing. This wasn't like, uh, this wasn't pretend. This wasn't something that he was putting forth for people. This was the way Bert was. And Bert, Bert was arrested, uh, I believe for assault on more than one occasion. He would beat you up if, uh, if he didn't. I don't like think it. Lonnie Anderson had a lot of good things to say about Bert. No, I don't. Well, and so the, the, the negative part, and we're definitely looking at this differently 
I don't think a lot of the women he dated in the 70s or 80s would have a lot of good to say about Bert. So, yeah, he, you know, but with that, boy, Boogie Nights is a great fucking movie and uh, tremendous I, soundtrack also. Oh, yeah. It, Julianne Moore and Heather Graham and uh, they, you know, it, William, William Macy just did such a great job with this film. And Bert was, uh, you know, I know the character and I don't. Unfortunately, my knowledge of porn is not what it used to be, but uh, uh, sorry, yeah, well, sorry, I, I, a little hiccup in my voice. That's there. what I'm going to claim as because we're recording. But Bert, Bert's character—you've never watched porn in your car and been thrown through the uh, the moonroof no? as one no, of our uh, recent stories. Never. I read that I have never watched porn in my car and been thrown through the roof or windshield or anything. But uh, it, Bert, Bert's character was modeled after somebody. And I forget who they said it was. I guess it was a famous porn director in some form. But uh, he did such a great job. And he made a couple of other movies during this period. He made, I guess this was a few years earlier, Cop and a Half. Uh, yeah, which, not one of his, not one of his. No, better, no. Uh, Pairing Bert with a young African-American child. So think of like two and a half men. But instead, it's a cop with a young African-American child. Not a good movie. And then he made a movie, which might have been his last movie, which I saw on cable. I forget who who's starring in it with him, but he plays a movie star going back to a small town and they declare it like Burt Bert Reynolds Day. And uh, he's a cranky old man at this point as well. And I forget what the movie's called. But, yeah, he made some movies which were probably not quite up to the level of what we expected from Burt. I will tell you my favorite guilty pleasure Burt Reynolds film is Stick, 1985 Stick. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm confusing that with, uh, there was a movie that came out like two years after that. Maybe it was Malone, something like that. I kind of get uh, those two. uh, So so a couple couple of trivia notes about uh, about Boogie Nights, because when you were talking about uh, who he was modeled after, I started looking at this. Uh, According to the IMDb website, uh, after seeing a rough cut of the film, Burt Reynolds regretted making it. He fired wow. his agent for recommending the role to him and did not participate in the promotional interviews. He ended up winning a Golden Globe for the role and being nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, despite being the front runner, it was widely rumored he did not win because he had distanced himself from the movie. The character of Amber Waves uh, and her custodial problems were inspired by a porn actress Veronica Hart. Veronica Hart fan, are you, Bear? I, I, you have to remind. So, Amber. <laughs> I just, yeah. I, was Amber Waves Heather Graham? Uh, no, I think Amber Waves was Julianne Moore. Oh, okay. I don't know Veronica Hart. Does she look like Pam Pam Greer or no? Uh, well, no. I, Other than uh, I my my nom- knowledge of that particular genre extremely limited, as you can uh, you know. Yes. So interesting. The Mark Wahlberg character <laughs> so of Eddie, yes. uh, well, uh, was originally <laughs> offered to Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, but he had already signed on to do Titanic. So you know, I'm sure he's a uh, pretty okay with uh, that's a good move. Yeah, sure, he probably made a pretty good career move. Yeah. So uh, William H Macy's uh, agent discouraged him from taking the role. Uh, let's see. Trying to think. Well, it's a sympathetic role for William H. Macy. Yeah, I got to tell you, I know that I'm watching a film and I'm actually feeling sorry for the guy. Yeah. And that's as his wife is getting banged by a bunch of other guys right in front of him. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because, of course, the woman who played his wife in the film 
was uh, Nina Hartley. I, I'm sure you've never heard of that name before, Barry. Anyway, uh, when he appeared in an episode of the Inside the Actors Studio, William H. Macy recalled that at the rap party, Nina Hartley, who played his character's wife and who is a real-life porn star, gave all the cast gifts of her own porn films. Macy's present was a copy of Nina Hartley's Guide to Anal Sex. The gift <laughs> that keeps on giving, Bear. That's so. awesome. I thought for sure. I thought you were going to say something like she blew the entire cast. I now, was. That would have been a real gift, but yes, you know, we yes. don't want to be critical of lovely Nina. No, no, not at all. We, we want to support Nina in any way that we can, obviously. Barry, we really appreciate you coming in from your vacation. Drove all the way back so we could do a recording. Uh, how are you enjoying uh, your time in Florida with the lovely Zoe? Having a great time. It's, uh, you know, the weather has been, uh, as Florida will be, you get some rain, you get some sunshine. Uh, it's busy this time of year. It's spring break. So uh, right now, everybody from up north is down south. I think the south had theirs last week or the week before. But I'm on Anna Maria Island. It's hopping. There's a lot of people. And uh, it is just Zoe and myself. And we're having a blast. Well, and Ozzy. I mean, don't leave and Ozzy. Call, I, you're 100% right. How can I leave Ozzy out? Yes. Check. Uh, anyway, uh, Barry, first of all, have you had the opportunity to have any enjoyable meals, whether breakfast, lunch, or dinner, with any of the brother shippers that live in the area? Not yet, but uh, I'm hopeful that it will happen within the next couple of days. Okay. So on that note, I will remind each and every one, each and every one of you. No, no, no. You, that one guy. See, you don't think I'm talking to you? I'm talking to you, mister. Don't you fucking give me that look. Don't. I'll talk to you later, mister. Anyway. That will remind you, each and every one of you, we are a production of the Arcadian Vanguard by God Network. On behalf of my co-host, Barry Rose, probably right now with a, a suntan, his bald scalp gleaming in the sun, spending time with the lovely Zoe and Ozzy. Till next week. Oh, and Lou Kippelman on the production duties. Can't forget Lou. Helped us out on this episode with the San Francisco Intel. Strong Intel. The folks always like hearing Lou's dulcet tones, his sexy voice. Uh, Mrs. Kippelman, probably most of all. We will see you next week. Take it home!